Uh, good morning, Cornerstone. Uh, my name is Michael. I'm one of the pastors here. And today we're taking a two-week break from our sermon series through the book of Revelation. Uh, over these next two weeks, we'll be doing a mini-series uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, looking and particularly at chapter 16, and looking this week at verses 13 to 20, and then the following week, next Sunday, looking at verses 21 to 28. Uh, if you have your Bibles open, I encourage you to have them open to Matthew 16, verses 13 to 20, which will be our passage today. That's Matthew 16, verses 13 to 20. Uh, at the end of this year, I'm looking forward to finishing my theological studies. Uh, once completed, I will be ordained into the Presbyterian Church of Australia. Uh, once ordained as a minister, I then have the title Reverend given to me. Uh, as you can see from my demeanour, I can barely contain my joy. But is there any significance to the titles given to a person? After all, in our culture... We tend not to use the titles given to the people they have been assigned. For example, during my time at college, I never referred to any of my lecturers by their titles. Uh, the Reverend Doctor and then their surname. And the only time I've ever heard of Campbell referred to his title, Reverend Campbell Markham, was during a state assembly. So what's the point of them? Our titles are very important. It tells us something about the person, who they are, or what they've done. For example, being called reverend tells us something about that person, that he is a minister of religion. And the title reverend means revered one, the respected one. Although we use the title reverend as a noun, uh, it's actually an adjective. In other words, Reverend Campbell Markham means the revered Campbell Markham. Although we seldom use titles in our culture, our titles tell us a lot about that person. Uh, it was C.S. Lewis in his book Mere Christianity who popularized the trilemma of who Jesus is. And he said that Jesus is one of three things. That Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. A Jesus made the claim to be God. And normally if someone claims to be God, he must be a lunatic. Someone of not sound mind. But if he is of sound mind, then he's a liar. But if he's not a liar, then he must be who he says he is. That Jesus must, in fact, be Lord. Hence why we call Jesus the Lord Jesus. In our passage today, we learn a lot about who Jesus is. And if we are struggling today with the question of who is Jesus, I want to bring three titles which our passage uh, talks about. And how these titles shed light on who Jesus is. And the three titles we're going to look at today are, first, that Jesus is the Son of Man. Second, that Jesus is the Christ. And third, that Jesus is the Rock. However, before we get into our first point, 
Uh, let's first set the scene. Uh, in verse 13, we are told that Jesus and his disciples are at the district of Caesarea Philippi. Our eyes tend to glaze over the location. But we have to realize just that the mere mention of where Jesus and his disciples are uh, would have been known by the first readers in the first century. And known to the disciples that this was a place of pagan worship, of emperor worship. Uh, today you can actually still see the ruins um, dedicated to Caesar. You can still see the outline, the framework of the temple of that pagan god. It is here that Jesus brings his disciples and reveals in great depth to them who he is. I think of it almost like Jesus has brought his disciples to Dark Mofa. And at the climax of the event, he says to them, he says to them these three titles. He says, I am the Son of Man, I am the Christ, and I am the Rock. But why here? Why here in Caesarea Philippi? Well, I think Jesus is making a statement. He's making a statement that he is far more superior than any other god, any other ruler that the world has ever seen or will see. Thus, having set the scene, friends, let's now look at the first of our three points. Our point number one. Jesus is the Son of Man. Uh, in verse 13, Jesus asks his disciples, uh, who, do you, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? In the Gospels, uh, the title Son of Man almost exclusively appears on the lips of Jesus to describe himself. Uh, what then is the significance to the title, the Son of Man? Uh, in the Old Testament, uh, the title Son of Man had a number of uses. It could have referred to humanity, or a particular person, or it could have referred to Israel, or Israel's king. Uh, predominantly in the Old Testament, it seems that the Son of Man is used to describe some sort of human figure. Hence why the disciples mention John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, or perhaps some other prophet. But when Jesus asks, who do the people say the Son of Man is? Uh, who do you think Jesus is referring to? Uh, when Jesus uses the title Son of Man, he speaks more than just of some human figure. But I think he rather speaks of a divine figure. I think when Jesus uses the title of Son of Man, he has one Old Testament passage in mind. And that's Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14. Let me read. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a Son of Man, coming with clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, and he was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples 
of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And this is the figure that Jesus has in mind when he speaks of the Son of Man. At Mark 2.10, Jesus says that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. In Mark chapter 2, verse 28, he says the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. In Matthew 19.28, we are told that the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And in Matthew 26.64, the Son of Man will sit at the right hand of the Mighty One and come on the clouds of heaven. At the Son of Man is a divine figure. And Jesus says that he is that divine figure. Now I can say with reasonable confidence that when Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, that the disciples don't know who or what he's referring to. Hence why they mention a human figure. However, us looking back, having been told all this, we can see that Jesus uses the title Son of Man to describe himself as the divine figure from Daniel chapter 7. Having been given the Holy Spirit, friends, having had God's word illuminated to us, having our spiritual blindness taken away, uh, we can see all this. And then we remember where Jesus is saying all this. That he says this in Caesarea Philippi. And he is saying to his disciples, I am greater than any created God. I hold more authority than any ruler in this world. I'm even greater than Caesar, the biggest superpower in the first century today. Jesus is thus saying that he is someone who is worthy of worship. He is someone that has been given all authority. He is someone that deserves all glory. And that his kingdom has authority over every other kingdom. And that his kingdom will not pass away. And every tribe, nation, and people will know this. Uh, what an awesome reminder to be told that our Lord Jesus is the Son of Man, one who has sovereign power over the whole world, and that he rightly deserves all our worship. Uh, Jesus is the Son of Man, uh, but our passage doesn't stop there. Our second title is Jesus is the Christ. Uh, in verse 15, Jesus asks his disciples, uh, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter responds and answers, uh, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Here we are told that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Uh, for this point, I want to focus on the title Christ. 
I remember growing up, uh, when I heard the name Jesus Christ, I thought that Jesus Christ was his actual name. Uh, first name Jesus, second name Christ. Uh, I imagine a l many in our society, I think this way also. But the word Christ, the title most associated with our Lord Jesus, uh, what does this title actually mean? What does Christ mean? Uh, the title Christ simply means anointed one. In Hebrew, the word Meshach, which we get the word Messiah. And the word Messiah and Christ can be used interchangeably. Uh, both these words mean the anointed one. Both the anointed one who was going to fulfill God's purposes. And what are God's purposes? Uh, for the first century Jew, the Messiah was someone who was going to deliver the Jews from the hands of their enemy, from those that were oppressing them. In the context of the first century, uh, these are the Romans, the Roman authorities. It is for this reason why Jesus was reluctant to ever describe himself as the Christ and reluctant to have the title given to him. Why? Because the expectations of the Messiah for the first century, for the Jew of the first century, was not the expectations that God had in mind for the Messiah. The purposes of God was indeed to help the oppressed Jews, but it was not from Roman authorities. It was from the greatest enemy that the Jews ever had. Our Jesus, our Messiah, his anointed task was to defeat and conquer sin and death. That's our gospel message, isn't it? That on the cross, Jesus conquered sin and death for us. On the cross, Jesus took it upon himself. Our sins, past, present, and future. Jesus took our sins upon himself and made us right with the Father. And this is the good news. Good news that has been made known to us. Uh, Jesus tells Simon Peter that this revelation has been made known to him by the Father. And this is exactly the same for us. Our God the Father has given to us the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit has made known to us the saving work of Jesus. In our sinful state, we are naturally blind, naturally deaf to the work of Jesus. But because of the Holy Spirit, we are spiritually able to see, spiritually able to hear. And this is why we know that Jesus is the Son of Man, and that Jesus is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. The figure described in Daniel chapter 7. Uh, this is why we know that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one of God, who has fulfilled and is fulfilling God's purposes in reconciling his elect and the fallen world back to himself. Uh, this is why we call Jesus Lord and Savior. Uh, this is why 
He is our God and Redeemer. We worship the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. One who has personally redeemed us. One who has personally died for us. And this is why we call it good news. But it doesn't stop there. Our passage still has one more title for us to explore. Our third point. Jesus is the rock. In verse 18, we come to one of the most controversial and debated verses in Scripture. Who or what is the rock? And the Roman Catholic Church has claimed that Jesus had said to Peter that Peter is the rock. That he is the foundation piece for the church. And that the church is built upon him. And the Roman Catholic Church have used this text as a proof text for apostolic succession. And that each pope is ultimately the successor of Peter. I, by contrast, Protestants have argued that Peter is not the rock, but rather it is his confession. Uh, Peter has just confessed that Jesus is the Christ. And that it is the knowledge that Jesus is the Christ, the one who has redeemed us, that this confession is the foundation of the church. Uh, Both these views have an element of truth, don't they? Uh, But they only go so far. Both Peter is indeed a rock, but he isn't the rock. I'll explain this in a little more detail in a second. And with the Protestant view, the confession points to Jesus, uh, that he is the Messiah. But scripture says that the church isn't just built upon this confession. It's not built on the confession alone. What does scripture tell us? Who the church is built upon. Well, time and time again, Scripture tells us that the church is built upon Jesus. And commentators suggest that in addition to these two views, that there is a third view. And that the rock in our passage is Jesus. I want to suggest that this is the view that we should be adopting. The text so far has been talking about Jesus, hasn't it? Thus far we have learned that Jesus is the Son of Man. That Jesus is the Christ. That Jesus is our Lord and Savior, our God and our Redeemer. Jesus has been the subject of our passage thus far. Our passage has been answering the question, who is Jesus? And I want to suggest that in verse 18, it continues Talking about Jesus. That Jesus continues to reveal who he is. And that he says to his disciples, Upon this rock, and he points to himself, Upon this rock, I will build my church. Our scripture never tells us that Peter is the foundation stone. Our scripture time and time again tells us that Jesus 
is the foundation stone. Our Jesus himself in the parable of the wicked tenants, in Matthew's gospel, in Mark's gospel, and in Luke's gospel, he says that he is the cornerstone. The cornerstone in which the church is built upon. And the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that Christ is the foundation upon which the church is built. It is upon Christ's work. Who he is, his teaching, his death, his resurrection that the church is built upon. I can't be Peter. For even upon Peter's own lips, he said that the Christ Christ is the cornerstone. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 7, he says, The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And that this stone is Christ. It's Jesus. Uh, but the question then must be asked, Why is Simon called Peter? Peter, which means rock. Uh, isn't Peter the rock after all jesus says that his name is now peter which means rock and this is the most natural reading of the text i want to say that peter is definitely a rock but he's not the rock the rock is christ and peter is a rock that is built though upon the foundation of christ uh, let me read again from 1 Peter chapter 2, this time from verse 4, which says, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, uh, this stone is precious. But to those who don't believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Apostle Paul also says in Ephesians 2, verses 19 to 22, he says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Our Calvin in his commentary says that Jesus has affirmed to Simon Peter that his salvation is secure, for it has been revealed to him by our Father in heaven who Jesus is. And Jesus gives to Simon the honor of being known, being called by the name of Peter. A Peter has become one of the first living stones built upon the foundation stone, Jesus. And just like Peter, 
We are all living stones, built upon the foundation of Christ. Our friends, the church is built upon Jesus. And we are told from our passage that the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Let me remind each of us where we are. Where Jesus is saying all this. He is saying this in Caesarea Philippi. Uh, Before Jesus and his disciples is a big cave. A cave dedicated to the pagan god Pan. And it was considered that this cave was actually the gateway to the underworld. Uh, Jesus is effectively saying, because the church is built upon me, my life, my death, my resurrection, since it is built upon me, uh, the gates of hell cannot destroy it. Uh, Jesus is saying that he is greater and more powerful than any spiritual force out there. Uh, We see this most clearly in the resurrection, don't we? It is in the resurrection where Jesus conquers death that we see that the gates of Hades could not hold him. That death had lost its sting. Our friends, what a comfort to know that Jesus is building his church upon his life, his work, his death, and his resurrection. And he gives to us the keys to the kingdom of heaven. What does this mean exactly? What are these keys that Christ has given? Well, I suggest that it is the gospel. Peter, in Acts chapter 4, verse 11, says this. The stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And the gospel is the keys. And through the teaching of the apostles, they have declared the only means to get into heaven. Uh, This is what Jesus means in verse 19. Whatever you bind in earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. That as the disciples were guided by the Holy Spirit, they would bear witness and proclaim the message of salvation. They declared that salvation comes only through Christ. Throughout their epistles, the apostles rebuked false teaching. They told us that the law has been fulfilled in Christ. We, are, we no longer attain salvation by works, but we attain salvation through Christ by grace alone. The apostles with the prophets have given us the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Uh, In the Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 23, we're told that the keys of the kingdom of heaven are the ordinary means of grace given to the church. The ordinary means of grace are the preaching of God's word, prayer and sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Uh, Through these means, we declare that salvation is found in Christ alone. 
R.C. Sproul within his commentaries on the Westminster Condition of Faith. He says this, Our God doesn't need us to build his church. He knows our prayers. And if he wanted to, he could bring people from heaven to repentance and faith. However, God has called us into intimate relationship with himself. And he uses us, his church, to enact his purposes. Our God wants us to be praying that his kingdom will come. He uses us to minister his word to those around us. And through the word, further equip his church. And likewise, through his word, bring people out of darkness and into light. I need to ask you at this point, friends. Are you doing this? Are you praying that God's kingdom will come? Are you praying that as a church, we will win people to Christ? That we will build them up in the gospel? And that we would send them out to proclaim the good news? And that's what we believe as a church. Wind, build, send. It's our vision statement. But the question is, are we doing it? We have been given the keys to the kingdom of God. We have been given the good news. We have been given the gospel. So what are we doing with them? Uh, let me end with this. In 2018, I had the privilege of being able to go to Israel um, on a Christ College study tour. I was able to go to Caesarea Philippi. I saw the ruins of the Temple of Caesar. I saw the framework to the temple of the temple of the pagan god. I saw the Cave of Pan, which is considered to be the gateway to the underworld. And it's here in Caesarea Philippi that Jesus declares that he is the Son of Man. That he tells us that he is the Christ. That he is the rock. He says right here that he is greater than any other God. More powerful than any power on the world. And he is more powerful than death itself. Jesus has taken us to Dark Mofo. He has taken us at the height of the celebration when the Ogo Ogo is about to be burnt up. And Jesus says to all around him, he says to his disciples, Are you see these things before us? Oh, well, they don't hold a candle to what I can do. Our friends, we have been reminded here today whom we worship. Uh, we don't worship a lunatic, a liar. We worship the Lord Jesus, who is King of Kings, Lord of Lords, one who has redeemed us, who has given us life through his death and resurrection, one who has the power to defeat death itself. And it's upon his name that we declare the good news. The only way to access the kingdom of God. What great news we have been reminded here today. 
Let's close in prayer. Our Father, what a great reminder we have been given today. That we have been reminded who Jesus is. And that He is our Lord and Savior. He is our God and our Redeemer. And that it's upon His name that we are to build your church. Our Father, thank you for the gospel message. Thank you for how it was revealed to us through the how it was revealed to us through the ordinary means of grace, through the preaching of your word, through prayer and the sacraments, and by your Holy Spirit made effectual. Our Father, we pray now that you would help us, your church, to be bold in proclaiming the gospel message. To us has been given the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Help us, we pray, by your Holy Spirit to be your hands and feet and to do the work you're already doing in building your church. We pray all this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.